The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Changing Future for Patients with Rett Syndrome and Their Families, Early Diagnosis and New and Emerging Therapies to Reduce the Burdens of Disease. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VWR 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone, and uh, today um, we're going to be having panelists, uh, myself, Jeffrey Newell, and Alan Percy. Um, so, hi, my name is Jeff Newell. I'm the director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center uh, and a professor of uh, pediatrics, pharmacology, and special education at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I'm going to start off talking about um, the issues related to identification of Rett syndrome and being able to do it earlier and differentiate from other more common neurodevelopmental disorders. The goals overall for this program are to identify people with Rett syndrome earlier, to provide age-appropriate care for uh, patients with Rett syndrome as recommended by consensus guidelines, to evaluate the evidence surrounding new and emerging treatments for Rett syndrome. So Rett syndrome uh, is a rare, debilitating, and progressive uh, genetic disorder. It's a severe neurodevelopmental disorder. It primarily occurs in girls and women, and it's actually the second most common cause of genetically identified severe intellectual disability in girls and women. But it may also occur in boys. Prevalence is about 1 in 10,000 to 1 in 15,000 uh, live female births. Um, and there's uh, additional clinical features that are uh, present in affected individuals. Most people with Rett syndrome have loss of function mutations in an X-linked gene called methyl-CPG binding protein 2, or MECP2. Most of these mutations are spontaneous and not heritable, meaning neither the mother or the father has a mutation. And there are hundreds of disease-causing mutations uh, in MECP2 that cause loss of function, but there are eight common recurrent point mutations that account for about 65% of the disease burden in Rett syndrome. So an important thing is trying to make a timely diagnosis. Um, and part of it is to provide the ability to counsel uh, the family and the caregivers about the prognosis and potential comorbidities. Um, beginning initiating therapies such as physical, occupational, and speech therapy, which um, we think might be beneficial if they start earlier. And um, early aggressive treatment for some of the associated uh, gastrointestinal and nutritional issues can help prevent uh, malnutrition and growth failure. So the age of the onset of regression generally occurs uh, about two years old. And now that uh, there are targeted therapies available and there are more therapies being developed, um, earlier use of these might provide more benefit. So what is Rett syndrome? It has a, char has a characteristic disease pattern and a set of uh, clinical criteria um, where there is a, a normal birth and delivery, typically uncomplicated, and then apparently normal neurologic development and physical development um, for the six months of life. Um, but then there is a, a period of developmental delay from six to 18 months. And then there's a regression. So it's a character's pattern with normal uh, uh, development, but then a regression of acquired um, milestones, acquired skills in spoken language, uh, purposeful hand skills, and then an impaired ability to walk or inability to walk and development of characteristic hand stereotypy. So you have this, this characteristic disease pattern, and then these four major criteria, regression of hand skills, spoken language, 
difficulty walking, and repetitive hand movements. That's for the diagnosis of classic or typical RET. There is an atypical RET class, uh, diagnosis. Um, it also has the same disease pattern with uh, a period of regression and stabilization. But it, and it meets two of the four major criteria plus five of 11 supportive criteria. And this is the list of supportive criteria. These are features that are found very commonly in classic RET, like uh, abnormal breathing, hyperventilation, uh, small cold feet, uh, intense eye communication using eye pointing. Now, um, there is a delay in the diagnosis of Rett syndrome um, in work done with a large national history study. The median age of uh, diagnosis was 2.7 years for people with typical Rett. Um, now, these earlier signs and symptoms may be subtle and not quite appreciated um, by clinicians. And trying to increase the awareness of clinical features um, and then subsequent use of genetic testing is now resulting in uh, earlier identification of, and diagnosis of Rett syndrome than in previous. Most often, the diagnosis is made by a neurologist, developmental pediatrician, or geneticist. And it's very infrequent that um, in this case study that it was made by a pediatrician or another pr uh, primary care provider. So there needs to be a level of suspicion um, for, uh, for Rett syndrome when there might be subtle signs of delay or, and definitely regression, especially in girls between six months and three years, especially the, the characteristic features of the loss of hand skills and repetitive hand movements. Now, there, and the other is the deceleration in the rate of head growth, which is a common feature in Rett syndrome, and I'll come back to that, um, and that's an important aspect to potentially diagnose earlier. Some of the differential diagnoses that could be included are things like autism, Angelman syndrome. Sometimes people consider cerebral palsy, although there isn't a, typically any evidence of perinatal trauma and there's no evidence of any imaging findings in the, uh, uh, from an MRI. And then other uh, things like Batten's or neur neuronal lipofusinosis, and then other just nonspecific developmental delay. There's a clinical overlap with other disorders with a lot of nonspecific features such as scoliosis, reflux, fracture, self-abusive behaviors that can uh, maybe make it uh, confusing about the diagnosis. Um, now, while I've mentioned the d deceleration in the rate of head growth as common, not all in individuals become microcephalic. And so it, it can be a common misperception that because the uh, person, even if they had a deceleration in head growth, it was noted, um, but still have a normal head circumference, um, that may delay the diagnosis. And so it's very important to be considering um, the timing of developmental milestones um, because it, they may be uh, delayed, but not beyond uh, a a normative range. So it may not be walking at a year and the pediatrician may say, well, but maybe they might not walk till 18 months. Um, and then, of course, the regression enhanced skills spoken language are a little more uh, dramatic. And then there's physical findings maybe including uh, impaired growth, uh, uh, decelerated head growth, to microcephaly and the hand stereotypes. Um, this uh, meeting the criteria for Ritz syndrome, you know, would be typically followed up by a genetic analysis for, to look for a pathogenic uh, variant in MECP2, um, which is found in 95% of people with classic or typical RET and 75 people with atypical RET. Um, however, it does not um, 
itself makes a diagnosis of Rett syndrome. There are people who have MECP2 mutations who do not uh, meet the criteria for Rett syndrome. Um, and there are people who have, have all the clinical features of Rett syndrome who do not have a defined mutation in MECP2. So you can't have it being just a, exactly equivalent for the genetic feature, genetic diagnosis. There's a typical disease pattern um, where the stage one, I said this early onset and developmental delay. Stage two is a regression, loss of these skills and development of hand stereopies. But then a stabilization, which is stage three, the pseudostationary or plateau stage, where there's no further regression. You don't really see much improvement in the skills. And then a number of other comorbid features, such as seizures and breathing problems, might become evident in that point. And then finally, stage four is called light motor deterioration. This is characterized by increased uh, tone, hypertonia, and rigidity, um, and more difficulty moving. It might have Parkinsonian features and progression of the scoliosis to the point that it might need to be intervened. And this occurs more in the teen years to young adulthood. Now, there are boys who have MECP2 mutations and ones that actually meet criteria for Rett syndrome. So this was originally identified in rare cases of uh, familial cases of Rett syndrome, where the mother is an asymptomatic carrier, um, and they had a very severely affected male siblings. And this uh, led to the initial understanding that you'd have um, this severe neonatal encephalopathy associated in boys with these MECP2 mutations, where they're severely affected from birth and really require maximal medical support, including tracheostomies and, and external ventilation to survive. However, there's been boys uh, who meet all the clinical criteria for Rett syndrome and look exactly like any other girl with Rett syndrome. Um, um, some of these boys have, also have Kleinfelter syndrome, where they have an XXY. They have two Xs uh, and a Y, but are phenotypically male, and they have a MECP2 mutation. Or they have a somatic mutation in MECP2 that occurred uh, during embryogenesis, so they, they are a mosaic for the MECP2 mutation in their body. Um, now, we've been recognizing many more boys with MECP2 mutations than we previously knew, and the, the phenotypic spectrum is much broader. Um, in general, uh, they are more severely affected than boys, uh, but they can meet the criteria for Rett syndrome with loss of function, I mean, with loss of skills. Um, and we've been terming some of these boys male retencephalopathy. Um, but the issue is that the common wisdom that Rett, because Rett they, the notion that Rett syndrome could only occur in females can lead to diagnostic delays and problems in boys who have MACP2 mutations and features of Rett syndrome. So let's talk about uh, a case, uh, Maddie, in her first six months. She, was a she had relatively normal development. Her family thought she was a bit floppy and maybe overly good, generally quiet and falling asleep easy. Easily. Uh, at one year visit to the pediatrician, the family raised concerns that Maddie, while she had sat and crawled, um, she wasn't pulling to stand or walking as her brother had done at that time. The pediatrician had reassured them that the skill development varies between children, that it's still time and should be fine. She, her head circumference, which was at 90% at birth, is now only at the 50th percentile. At 20 months, uh, there was an urgent visit to the pediatrician because in the past month, Maddie stopped using her five acquired words and was now only babbling. Um, she also had no longer been self-feeding with the pincer grafts, which she had been doing uh, earlier. And then she started exhibiting this hand-wringing. She was having difficult, more difficulty initiating steps, and she seemed to be withdrawn and having decreased social interactions. 
Okay, I think I'm going to shift over to uh, my colleague, Alan Percy, and he's going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, clinical care. Good morning. I'm Alan Percy. I'm a child neurologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I'm happy to be here. So we're going to talk about some consensus criteria that were elaborated in 2020 by Carrie Fu and other associated with this project. It involved a large literature review of Rett syndrome features, uh, consensus uh, comments with a modified Delphi approach uh, from ex external review and public comment. And we had further input from the Rett centers that were uh, developed around the world, uh, country at this time, as well as some parent advocacy uh, group input. <clears throat> now, these two quotes are, are important to understand. The overall multi-system issues of RET require primary care providers and other health care professionals to manage complex medical comorbidities within the context of whole individual and the family. Given the median life expectancy of, of RET, girls with RET syndrome or women with RET syndrome, guidance is provided to health professionals to achieve current best possible outcomes for these special needs individuals. Now, there are multi-system involvement in girls with or women with RET syndrome, as Jeff has mentioned. And these include uh, or really a laundry list of problems which cover most of our biologic systems, including seizures, GI problems, uh, chewing, eating, swallowing, uh, constipation, growth failure, uh, poor muscle tone with low tone initially, which eventually becomes uh, normal and everybody is happy and then becomes increased or with uh, greater rigidity. Uh, scoliosis is a significant problem as well as sleep problems uh, and the breathing irregularities that were mentioned. When, when we consider uh, approaches to girls at various ages, it's important to recognize that some of these features uh, vary. So during the first five years of life, you uh, may not see features of scoliosis. You may not see uh, significant features with tone issues, but you will see problems with feeding, uh, perhaps uh, inability to swallow appropriately, so some food goes into the uh, tra trachea, and therefore a G-tube is required. About a third of the girls with Rett syndrome do require uh, alternative feeding methods with a G-tube. Uh, seizures uh, may begin to appear at the end of this period, but are generally not that common. But issues with sleep uh, can be significant. Uh, later on, from five years up through the prepubescent period, issues with seizures, the irregular breathing, so hyperventilation or breath holding, principally during wakefulness. And this can be so significant that it interferes with all activities, including eating, uh, educational activities, or interacting with their peers or their family. Uh, scoliosis uh, begins to be a, a problem as well. At this point in time, a further uh, assessment of weight and height increase uh, should be uh, 
characterized. And it is, should be known that girls and women with Rett syndrome are typically quite small, with their weight rarely exceeding 100 pounds and their length rarely reaching five feet. Uh, after puberty, and puberty uh, really occurs about the same time as in the normal female population, although there is a portion of the population that has early onset of puberty, and the onset of menses is a little bit later than in the general population, but is essentially normal. In adulthood, uh, particularly after age 21 when school ends, problems emerge because there is often no place for the child to go during the daytime, and therefore one or even both of the parents may have to uh, give up work or limit their working activities to manage the care of the child. So these assessments are recommended uh, in this uh, guideline and should be taken uh, to heart. There are also psychosocial issues that involve the families and the girls with Rett syndrome. Uh, the financial burden, the emotional burden, and the physical effects of Rett syndrome are substantial. And this can affect the siblings as well as the parents. As these girls age, the parents age. So they have greater difficulties moving around the girl who may be total care, um, has to be moved from chair to wheelchair, chair to the toilet, chair to bed. And if you lift even 80 pounds uh, several times a day, that takes a toll on you. Uh, some of these girls are actually quite, quite capable of getting around, ambulate reasonably well, can get to the stove, get to the water, can even get out of the house. So uh, care must be taken to protect the environment for those girls who are, are better able to function. Uh, their educational enrichment programs are available. Government support and other agency support is available. Uh, and the family needs to take care, take advantage of uh, home health as well as respite care because it is important to consider the health of the families as, as well. And in addition, as the girls uh, reach 18, uh, they become adults and the parents no, no longer have control. So they, uh, parents need to obtain guardianship and conservatorship prior to this period. The consensus guidelines did provide uh, input from the RET advocacy organizations, but the question is, do families and clinicians prioritize the same goals of care? And do the clinical trial endpoints reflect these opinions? So the current FDA guidance advocates that the affected individual's voice, or in this case, the caregiver's voice, should be heard when discussing outcome measures. Caregivers of uh, participants in our natural history study were asked to identify their top three concerns. And these were from a 21 list of predefined concerns, as well as the option to write in a 
another concern as free text. The top concern was communication, followed by seizures, lack of hand use, abnormal walking, and constipation. Uh, these concerns obviously varied by the patient uh, pro problems, as well as their mutation and their clinical severity, which they uh, displayed. Let's meet Zoe. Zoe's a 19-month-old girl with a newly diagnosed Rett syndrome. She had loss of hand use, um, her pincer grasp uh, stopped, and she was only able to grasp with her palm. She had loss of acquired words of mama and dada, and now was only babbling. Uh, she'd lost her previous ability to, to stand, and she had finger-rubbing movements uh, when not otherwise uh, involved. And genetic testing found a uh, pathogenic mutation in MECP2, which is one of the more significant uh, mutations in terms of clinical severity. The family was concerned about Zoe's prognosis and looking for guidance on potential clinical problems and medical management. So it would be appropriate at this time to discuss the potential problems that the family was looking at uh, during the next few years, as well as longer-term uh, issues. However, it probably is wise <clears throat> not to overemphasize the significant features which may occur in the future, but might not occur. But it is very important to consider growth, nutrition, um, access to early intervention, and other issues uh, in the early infancy and uh, childhood period. In terms of atypical or typical rest syndrome, it's interesting. Uh, there are individuals with atypical rest syndrome who are actually more severe or significantly involved than those with rest syndrome, and other individuals who are less significantly involved. So one has to look at these girls uh, quite carefully to decide uh, what issues are most more likely to uh, occur and need attention. I'm going to start talking about uh, the targeting at uh, MECP2 treatment, um, the advances in uh, the uh, care and treatment options uh, that have been developed and are being developed. So, again, the road towards uh, the development of therapies for Rett syndrome really, uh, you know, as mentioned before, the majority of people with Rett syndrome have mutations in MECP2. Um, MECP2 is a uh, gene that includes a protein, um, methyl CPG binding protein 2 or MECP2, that binds DNA, methylated DNA, and recognizes these epigenetic marks, and it regulates the expression of other genes. It regulates a large number of uh, other genes. Um, the largest level of expression is within neurons, even though it's expressed in all, pretty much all the tissues in the body. Um, and it seems to be very important for overall neuronal function and the maintenance, the establishment and maintenance of synaptic connections. Um, there are animal models that have been made, um, and they show a variety of phenotypic abnormalities that are very similar to those seen in people with Rett syndrome. And importantly, work done in uh, 2007 uh, 
found that when you restore MECP2 function in symptomatic animals, that uh, by genetically turning the gene back on in an engineering feat, um, this would reverse the symptoms. So the animals could be clearly sick, and you could turn the gene back on, and then they would get better. They got better. And so this really demonstrated potential for meaningful therapy development and real hope. There is an issue that there is a small therapeutic window in terms of adding MECP2 back because too much MECP2 activity um, can cause problems. And in fact, there's a neurodevelopmental disorder called MECP2 duplication syndrome where they have an extra copy. So both gain and loss of function of MECP2 can cause um, uh, neurodevelopmental disorders that are both severe. So you have to be in the right range of how much MECP2 you put back. Um, here's a little video um, about... Uh, aspects of um, loss of functional MECP2. Functional MECP2 depletion is hypothesized to be a major contributor to the CNS manifestations in Rett syndrome. MECP2 mutations lead to the dysregulation of several molecular processes and mechanisms, including brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, microRNA, and glutamatergic pathways, leading to impaired neuron growth. BDNF is a signaling protein and member of the neurotrophin family of growth factors that influences survival, development, and improved function of neurons. BDNF stimulates the differentiation of progenitor cells to form neurons, supports the survival of existing neurons, and encourages growth and strengthening of new neurons through axonal and dendritic sprouting, leading to increased connections with other neurons. It also strengthens the synapse through increasing numbers of receptors, resulting in improved cognitive function. The lack of BDNF results in the weakening of synaptic strength, making neurons more vulnerable to stressors and atrophy. It leads to a disruption of signaling, decreasing synaptic connections required for efficiency in memory and learning. MicroRNAs are involved in glial and neural cell type determination, migration of newly formed neurons, neuronal cell type determination, neuronal polarization, axonal formation, and dendrite branching. Interruption of microRNA pathways in the CNS may result in gross abnormalities, for example, ataxia and gait abnormalities associated with cerebellar impact. The exact interplay of molecular interactions is complex and remains unclear. MECP2 deficiency disrupts processes involving glutamatergic synaptic responses and astrocyte, glial cell, microglia, and oligodendrocyte functions. Dysfunctional glutamate signaling can result in neurotoxicity and negatively alter brain function. So um, recent work has led to the first FDA-approved treatment for Rett syndrome. Um, this was approved in, this, uh, in 2023, March, um, for adults and children uh, who have Rett syndrome who are over two years old. Um, it originally had received priority review orphan drug designation, fast track des drug designation with the FDA. Um, the dose is, is weight based. It's administered orally or via G tube uh, twice a day. So, what is trifinitide? So, trifinitide is a synthetic analog of a tripeptide that's derived from the amino terminus of insulin-like growth factor one. The tripeptide is uh, glycine proline glutamate or glypromate. This is a naturally occurring cleavage product um, of, uh, of IGF-1. Um, it has a variety of uh, activities that are independent of the IGF-1 receptor. It seems to help improve neuronal and glial function. 
um, and the treatment uh, with glypromate and animal models of Rett syndrome um, improved features. So the synthetic analog trifinitide um, it, it, it is basically identical to the glypromate. It has a methyl group, so it improves the drug qualities, meaning it, it has a longer half-life. It can be taken orally. And the exact mechanism of glypromate and trofinitide is not known, um, but it may be related to reducing neuroinflammation, um, helping improve overall synaptic function um, and dendrite morphology. There were two phase two trials that were conducted with trofinitide, one in adults and one in children in Rett syndrome. And both of them showed that trofinitide was safe and tolerated and they both had um, evidence of efficacy uh, on clinician and caregiver rating scales. This supported uh, the initiation of a phase three trial of trofinitide. And that was called the Lavender Trial. It was a 12-week three, uh, 12-week phase three study, um, ultimately in having 187 people with Rett syndrome between five and 20 years old, um, randomized on a one-to-one basis to either uh, trofinitide or placebo. Yeah co-primary endpoints, um, which were changed from baseline in 12 weeks on a caregiver scale called the Rett Syndrome uh, Behavior Questionnaire. Um, This is a 45-item caregiver scale. Um, It's called the Behavior Questionnaire, but actually covers a wide domain of uh, features uh, that are found in people with Rett Syndrome, so it's not only behavioral abnormalities. Um, And then the Clinician Caregiver Impression of Improvement uh, global impression, the CGII, um, using this is a seven point scale that uh, ranks uh, improvement or worsening. And there's Rett syndrome specific anchors and specific training on using it to try to uh, have uh, inter rater reliability. Here are the outcomes for the lavender in terms of the primary endpoint of the caregiver scale, the RSPQ. And this is uh, on the left-hand side showing progression over time. And this is showing uh, change. This is a decrease and decreased scores is better. Higher scores on the RSPQ are worse. And you see at two weeks, both the placebo, which is in orange, and the, and the uh, trofinitide group showed a drop, uh, which is an improvement. But over t- the rest of the time to 12 weeks, the people in the placebo group, the families, went back to baseline, and the trofinitide group stayed low. So that initial two-week uh, decreases seems like a placebo effect, which was very similar to what was seen in the phase two pediatric trial that actually had a single blind run-in period, and you had a, a marked tr- uh, placebo effect on the caregiver scale. Um, the, so at, at week 12, you had a difference uh, favoring trofinitide compared to placebo. On the left hand, on the um, left hand side, I'm sorry, the right hand side of it, it shows the subscales of the RSBQ um, with a directionality to the left, meaning favoring trofinitide. So you can have a number of subscales of these different features. And you see that all of them uh, trended to move towards improvement with being on trofinitide. And it wasn't just um, one or two things that drove the overall improvement. It was kind of distributed across the RSBQ. Um, This is the Clinical Global Impression of Improvement Scale, the CGII. And again, you see that you saw there's a split um, in favoring trofinitide, which again has decreased scores uh, at 12 weeks. Um, And then these are the uh, uh, 
the, the p-values. It doesn't have the effect size. Both of these had effect sizes that were in a moderate range with Cohen's uh, effect, uh, Cohen's uh, about uh, 0.4 to 0.5. Now, let's talk about the treatment emergent averse events. Um, the f most common was diarrhea and vomiting. Um, and you see that in the trifinitide group, about 80% uh, of the people had uh, diarrhea in the, compared to 20% in the placebo, which is still rather high. It's unusual for 20% of people with Rett syndrome to have diarrhea. And then the next was vomiting, um, which was about 27% in trifinitide compared to about 10% in placebo. Uh, most of these were mild or moderate. Uh, and the, the diarrhea was the most common adverse event leading to withdrawal from the trial. About 13% of the people withdrew because of diarrhea. Um, now, when people go off of trifinitide, the diarrhea usually resolves. And during the course of the study, um, a management plan was uh, developed and implemented, and um, that's been uh, published about how to approach uh, management of diarrhea uh, when on trifinitide. About 75% of uh, the people who um, received uh, trifinitide during the double-blind phase continued, completed the trial. Um, there, was, there is a concern for functional unblinding due to the high rates of diarrhea. Um, but when a sub-analysis was done looking at the people who had diarrhea, who, who didn't, and how the score, how people were ranked, actually the people who had diarrhea, both the caregiver and the clinician, gave not as favorable scores as the people who did not have diarrhea um, for their ranking. So if anything, it actually might have been biasing people to give worse scores than better. So it didn't seem to really affect the unblinding. Um, there are, there was a, there have been three, uh, two, uh, three other studies that were uh, conducted with trifinitide that um, uh, were open label studies. One was in, uh, called the daffodil and uh, people who are two to five years old, which is primarily focused on pharmacokinetics and safety. That's been completed. And then uh, open label extensions uh, uh, called LILAC and LILAC2 for the people who were part of the lavender trial that have continued on. But all of these now have ended and um, are being analyzed. I'm going to shift gears now and put it back to Alan about other treatments for Rett syndrome being developed. So there are other, treat other treatments for or Rett syndrome, uh, which are in the study phase. None of them yet has uh, reached level of uh, either a phase three trial or uh, FDA uh, approval. Uh, the first is blarcamosine, which is a tongue twister. It's a product of Anavex, uh, which is Anavex 2-73. Um, blarcamosine is a sigma-1 agonist and muscarinic receptor modulator. In mice, it uh, showed uh, similarly to trifinitide that it improved cellular uh, homeostasis and synaptic plasticity. Uh, it did increase the release of BDNF and resulted in a variety of improvements in motor, sensory, and autonomic uh, features. The top line results from a phase three trial in women 18 to 45 uh, were reported uh, about a year and a half ago. 72% uh, of the treatment arm versus 39% uh, of the placebo arm showed a significant improvement for the primary uh, uh, endpoint, which was the caregiver-reported RSBQ that Jeff has already discussed. 
meaningful improvements were also uh, noted in two other clinical outcome measures, the CGI I, uh, as was used in the drafinitide trial, as well as the ADAM score, which is a uh, behavioral score. <clears throat> a multi-center double-blind placebo-controlled trial was then completed in June of this year uh, with uh, 92 patients uh, age 5 to 17. Uh, dose escalation, safety, tolerability, and efficacy uh, were the outcome uh, looked at, and the co-primary endpoints were the same as in the trofinitide, the RSBQ, and the CGI scores. The top-line data have not yet been released, but we do expect them uh, shortly. Uh, as with trofinitide, blarcamosine has the same fast-track designation, rare pediatric disease designation, and orphan uh, drug uh, designation from the Food and Drug Administration. Another treatment uh, which has been investigated uh, recently is that of ketamine. Ketamine is a non-competitive N-methyl-D aspartate or glutamate receptor, so-called NMDAR receptor antagonist. This was studied in a phase two uh, placebo-controlled crossover trial assessing safety, tolerability, and efficacy in uh, girls who were 6 to 12 years of age. Uh, the results are uh, currently being analyzed and are expected to support a phase 3 trial. Uh, ketamine has also been offered uh, orphan drug uh, uh, status by the FDA. And excitingly for many individuals, two gene therapy programs are available. One is by Tasha Gene Therapies. The other is by Neurogene. These are both American companies uh, using a similar but not identical recombinant, non-replicating, self-complementary uh, AAV9 vector encoded uh, MECP gene, uh, 2 gene, uh, which has some regulatory elements to uh, um, prevent some overexpression that uh, uh, Jeff mentioned could be a problem. Uh, the administration of this, these two compounds, these, in these two companies, is different. In the Tasha trial, it's, uh, it's intrathecally, and in the Nergene trial, it's intracerebroventricularly. Also, the Tasha trial was initiated, or has been initiated in Canada, and it is in adults, or, or those greater than 18 years of age. And the Neurogene trial, which I think has uh, just been initiated, involves children of 4 to 10, and it is in this country. So let's meet Alicia. Alicia is a 5-year-old girl who was diagnosed at 3 years of age with typical Rett syndrome. She vocalizes with all sounds, occasionally reaches for objects but cannot grasp. She has constant hand-clapping stereotypies and frequently holds her breath. She has two to four paroxysmal events per week with freezing and limb stiffening associated with breath holding. She has been on oxcarbazepine for treatment for previously identified or diagnosed seizures, 
but uh, has no, had no change in response uh, to these paroxysmal events with a ongoing uh, treatment. What's the next step in management? Should we start another anti-seizure medication? Perform a prolonged video EEG to evaluate whether the paroxysmal events are seizures? Uh, recommend epilepsy surgery or recommend a ketogenic diet? Our experience uh, has told us that we should uh, perform the uh, video EEG because many of these events uh, do not have an epileptic signature and are regarded in many cases as RET spells. I understand that's not a very uh, uh, attractive or accurate term, but uh, it, it differentiates these uh, issues from actual clinical seizures. Coming back to Alicia, what would be the indications for a novel or, or emerging therapies in Rett syndrome as they apply? Well, uh, currently, uh, any girl, woman, uh, even boys who meet cr uh, criteria for Rett syndrome are considered candidates for treatment with trofinitide. Uh, this is, as Jeff mentioned, a weight-based uh, uh, double uh, twice a day exposure to this medication. And we have typically started lower than the recommended top dose and gradually increased that on a weekly basis up to the top dose. We understand the potential for uh, diarrhea or vomiting. Uh, and we have instituted programs for the program for uh, managing this. The anticipated benefits and risks are Therapy modifications need to be considered. Most of the improvements that are seen in girls with Rett syndrome are improved interaction, communication, in some cases uh, better walking, in some cases uh, more uh, ability to answer questions uh, through a, a, a Toby device or a video tablet. So uh, we do recognize that it's important to uh, look for, at benefits and risks and discuss these openly with the family. The strategies to incorporate the use of new treatments in a clinical practice, uh, including initiating treatment with current and newly diagnosed patients, I think this has already been uh, discussed. Uh, we are very excited about the availability of treatment and we look forward to other uh, treatments uh, coming online in the coming years. So what are the takeaway messages? Uh, as uh, mentioned, Rett syndrome is a rare, debilitating condition that varies in its presentation and primarily affects girls. The 2020 consensus guidelines provide recommendations for management by primary care providers and specialists. And what I want to emphasize the primary care provider because the number of specialists may vary from time to time and over time. Uh, somebody has to be a quarterback, and the primary care provider should be this person. Sh the focus should be on meeting the, both the patient and the family needs along a spectrum from early age through adulthood. The RET treatment paradigm, which is aimed at symptomatic management, uh, changed dramatically this year with the approval of 
uh, trophinotide aimed at the rat, RET pathophysiology. And we anticipate additional treatments uh, as a develop developmental pipeline moves forward. Jeff, do you have any comments? No, I think uh, that's great. And I, I, the only thing I wanted to add, though, is that um, the, in terms of the gene therapy, um, the, the Taisha trial initiated in adults in, um, in Canada, but they recently received um, FDA approval and IND approval to do a trial here in the U.S. in children. Um, and I noticed that about 20% of the people gave the answer of two-phase Three. That, that was a. It was phase three trials. Neither of these are phase three trials. They're phase one trials uh, for gene therapy. They're first in human and uh, very small numbers uh, initially to look at safety. Uh, so just that was my main comment about that. But um, great. Do we have another? Okay. So it's question and answer time. I was going to kick off. I just because we have a number of. Uh, there are some questions that have already come through, um, and so some of them, I'm going to combine a couple of them. There's a timeline for uh, implementing treatment when it's too late, um, how frequent is early diagnosis essential for, may, for therapy treatment, and then trial medication eligibility. So with regards to trifinitide, trifinitide um, uh, is approved for people over two years old with a diagnosis of Rett syndrome. Um, the FDA label does not say anything about uh, typical or atypical. It doesn't say anything about requirement for a MECP2 mutation. It doesn't say anything about um, uh, sex, uh, male, female. Um, now, you know, our, our, you know, our experience of actually getting this approved by third-party payers, um, oftentimes they will ask for a number of things that are not necessarily on the label, like uh, uh, MECP2 mutation. Um, now, in terms of the uh, uh, when is a treatment too late? So I'll start with uh, with a trifinitide experience. So the first phase uh, two trial was in adults who were 16 to 45 years old, and there was uh, evidence of improvement in uh, in that age range. So there is no, you know, we, it did, it, there does seem to be opportunities even in adults, even though the phase three trial was in five to 20 year old. Um, but in terms of other therapies too, um, such as gene therapy and stuff, while I think there's um, good hy uh, theoretical reasons to believe that earlier interventions will be more beneficial um, because of the neurobiology um, and what we understand about development in neurobiology. We don't really know that is true yet. And in the animal models, the genetic reversal experiments um, were done at, in adult and symptomatic animals. And in the female, heterozygous female animals, when it was done, they were 40 weeks old, which is a rather old mouse. So, the, you know, there are it does seem that at least in if going by the mouse models that there's opportunities for improvement even when in adults and when people are very symptomatic now that has to be couched in the terms that you know when you have things that result in orthopedic uh, abnormalities like contractures and scoliosis and fixed positional deformities um, those are things that uh, in and of itself are not going to be corrected unless there's a, a surgical correction of things like that and though that might impact um, the ability even if you have the opportunity to say walk better, um, if you have very bad uh, dystonia and contractures, uh, without that being corrected, you probably would not be able to um, walk. 
So I just tried to answer those uh, combined together. But now um, maybe we could open it up to the audience. We have other um, other people wrote in. So I had a question. Great, great job, guys. Um, so are there particular impairments uh, that are more sensitive to treatment than others? That's sort of one part of the question. And if there are, um, given that uh, in, in kids they acquire skills with training plus plasticity, have you considered that maybe if you're, if you're doing some training in, in association with the treatment, you would actually have better outcomes? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and uh, I'll just repeat it. It was really about the idea of combining uh, therapeutic, like treatment, like uh, occupational learning therapies, etc., um, uh, communication therapy with uh, these new treatments that may be that have been approved or might, are being tested, like trifinitide or these other treatments. And of course, I think that that is a, for sure. I mean, to me, I think that's a very, uh, it hasn't been formally tested in that way, you know, and, but I think it's, you know, and I always felt like, feel like, you know, if you, even if you had a perfect thing that um, gave you the MECP2 back for gene therapy, I think if you've lost the ability to speak, you probably are going to have to be, you might have the, the milieu with the gene back to, to, to uh, learn, but you probably are going to have to have targeted interventions. You know, many, a lot of people with Rett syndrome get a lot of therapies, but of course it's highly variable how much therapy they get, which is unfortunately heavily tied to access and social economic features, right? Um, about how, what the intensity is and what the quality is. And so, you know, it'd be definitely worthwhile considering how you combine these and evaluate them. Alan, do you have anything else to say? Yeah, there, uh, we uh, are aware of animal studies that shows that uh, environmental enrichment for the animals leads to better outcomes of, of the animals. Uh, and we actually see that in some of the families where the girls, for one reason or another, do not have access to uh, treatment programs. Uh, for example, the uh, use of, uh, of the Toby device. Uh, we have some girls who seem to communicate very effectively with that uh, device. Um, so uh, providing these uh, kinds of uh, enrichment across the board, I think, seems to be an area that needs to be evaluated more carefully than it has been in, to date. We have no control studies of effects of the Toby device, for example. Thanks for the nice talk. It's always very exciting to hear about new therapy for the for the patient with the genetic syndrome. So my name is Wei Liang Chen. I'm from Children's National Hospital, Washington DC. Just I have a, actually I have a few questions, but I try to make them simple. So first of all, um, looks like in the trial, the two main concerns or the two main um, the parents concerned. Um, were not really answered by the clinical trial, right? One is the communication, the second one is the seizure. Can you guys make some comment on that? I know that Dr. Uh, Percy already mentioned some patients have a better communication skill, but I, I don't feel that this really um, 
it's, it was not a primary goal for the uh, for the clinical trial. And the second, again, the seizure. Can you guys make some comment on that? Yeah, I, yeah. So, okay. The basically, you're you're bringing up um, the top concerns, the way the top concerns data that was presented, um, and how it relates to um, out treatment outcomes in the say the Trafinitar trial or other trials. You know, and yeah, the top five uh, weighted concerns were communication and things that we you know it, it aligned with what we might expect because there were skills that were lost like communication hand function, walking, but then also these co high-level comorbidities, seizures, and constipation. Those are the top five. And, you know, the, so within the, um, within the clinical global impression scale of severity and improvement, uh, the, there are Rett syndrome-specific anchors that actually incorporate, you know, a, a CGI just has one score. It's, it has a score from one to seven, depending on its severity or improvement. Um, but in the anchors themselves, they actually incorporate um, aspects of communication. When you read the anchors, it's, it talks about communication, hand skills, uh, mo uh, walking, um, seizures. So those are built in, although it does not specify, you don't see it as just the score, but that's what helps uh, make the determination of the score based on the anchors. Just for context, too, the the top concerns information, um, that's data that we've just analyzed and put together and are trying to get published uh, that's in a, a preprint. Um, so that's, that's sort of newer than the, when things were developed for the outcome measures for the trials, right? Um, so and even the anchors and stuff. So I think, though, that's an important feature when we think about moving forward with trials and outcome measures and what, you know, evaluating which would be outcome measures that would be the best to be used for a trial and or be developed for, the, for these kind of things to make sure that they do align with what are the top concerns um, of the caregivers. I'd like to throw one thing out, and that is uh, with the availability of a treatment for Rett syndrome. The idea has been mentioned in some circles about uh, newborn screening for girls with Rett syndrome. And um, as Jeff uh, has indicated, that's a potentially slippery slope because not all girls who have a mutation in MECP2 are uh, destined to develop Rett syndrome. So just uh, basing treatment on a uh, MECP2 diagnosis is um, dangerous, I think, uh, at this point in time. We need to learn more. Yeah, and I think it's going to be important for us to develop a better ability to uh, have that positive predictive value. If you have a MECP2 mutation and you're pre-regression, what would be the constellation of things that you could have with high confidence that you are going to go on to develop? Um, Red syndrome, because I think, with, as was alluded to, with different therapy development, and I'm sure definitely with gene therapy, um, as this progresses and if it's safe and seems to show benefit, people are going to want to start intervening earlier and earlier. So we need to have a, a better sense about absolutely how, how, how confident we are that you're going to go on and develop uh, Red syndrome if you have a MECB2 mutation. Well, anyway, thank you all for coming, uh, and this is a lively conversation. Thank you. This CME activity is provided by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.
remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VWR 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Acadia Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.